1: at your local auto parts store, or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 216, and today in the show, Dan and I are joined by a brand new hunter, and we're taking on the enormous task of trying to teach him everything he needs to know to get started deer hunting in just an hour and a half. Alright, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast and uh, today on the show, we're doing something that I've wanted to do for a long time now and I've kind of had it on my list of to-dos but I've kept pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off and, and finally we're now doing it and that is providing a beginner's guide to deer hunting um, and you know, the, the, the a huge proportion of our audience, probably the majority, well definitely the majority of our audience for this podcast is comprised of, of really serious, really experienced deer hunters. Deer hunters that, that don't need a beginner's guide. So to those of you in that group, don't turn this one off yet because there is something here for you too. But I also get lots and lots of emails and messages from people on the other side of the spectrum who are brand new to deer hunting and looking for help asking me all sorts of questions, um, or, or talking about the fact that you know up to this point they've just had to jump into the podcast and try to figure things out as they go, but I've always wanted to provide something better, something I could point to and say, hey, this is where you can get started, um, you know, a true launching point for those of you who are new to all this, and so that's what I want to do here today. We're going to cover everything that Dan and I can think of to help get a brand new deer hunter started, and to help us do that, I've got a guest and this is where I think this episode gets particularly interesting, even if you're an experienced hunter, because this guest is a brand new hunter himself. Um, and I brought him along to actually be the voice of the new hunter, to actually provide kind of, uh, you know, this podcast is speaking to new hunters. And now we're actually going to have a new hunter on the show with us to listen to us and to say, hey. This doesn't make sense. Or, hey, tell me more about this. Or, hey, that's all great, but what I really want to know about is A, B, and C. So as we walk through our beginner's guide, my friend and this new hunter, Connor, he's going to listen along and jump in when he needs more. He's going to jump in when necessary. And I think it's going to lead to a couple cool things. Um, number one, like I just kind of mentioned, we're going to get to cover you know the questions and concerns that new hunters really have. Uh, I think that if me and Dan just did this on our own, there would be the risk of us glossing over certain things that we would just assume that new people would know, but maybe they wouldn't. So by actually having Connor here with us, he's going to call us out and say, "Hey, what in the world does crepuscular mean or something like that And we'll make sure to cover <laughs> <laughs> and make sure to cover this I thing. don't even know that well we'll, we'll get to that, Dan. <laughs> um, and then number two, if you are an experienced hunter, with aspirations of someday helping somebody else get into hunting, you know, if you want to help your kids or your friends or whoever it might be, if you want to help someone else get into this community and this lifestyle, I think this podcast is going to provide you a great opportunity to kind of get a preview of what that process might be like. Because now you can actually hear from another new hunter and hear about what his questions are. You know, hear about what his concerns were, hear about which things confused him so that when you'd go about this on your own, you'll have a, some different things kind of help you prepare. So I think this is going to be valuable for both new hunters and experienced, obviously two different goals there, but I'm excited about it. That's our game plan. I think this should be and will be a really helpful resource and, um, that's what we're going to do. So before we get to that though, uh, Dan, does that, does that sound like a good plan? Is there anything else we should add? Um... What are your thoughts?
0: No, I really think this is good because not only does it force me and you to dumb it down a little bit. Uh, it also um, is something that I think as we get more and more in depth into hunting strategy, that we forget the basics sometimes. And I think that is what causes you and me, because we are both self-admittedly do this, uh, overthink yeah,
1: when we probably don't need to. And that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it really does come down to just taking like a step out of all the, like the minutia, like you, you, all the details. Like sometimes, sometimes it's good to take a step back and just get back to basics. Um, that yeah. you know during well, <laughs> I won't go into rabbit holes here. But I one play, one time of year I always find myself needing to do that is during the rut when I get like over obsessed with all these little things and then I just say okay take a step back remem- remember the core fundamentals of hunting at this time of year. And that usually gets me back on the right track, but uh, but we'll, we'll talk more right. about that, I guess, a little bit right. later here once Connor gets on here. Um, first off,
0: before we do get in, I got to tell you something. For you know, congrats on the big news that uh, just went down last week between you and Meat Eater, man. That's uh from from a you know a contributor to this podcast to also a follower of Wired Wired to Hunt. You know, I speak for the the Wired to Hunt you know, nation that, uh,
1: uh, congrats, man. That's a big thing. Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate that. And, uh, I appreciate all of your contributions and help along the way. And, uh, I think, uh, there's lots of exciting stuff ahead and, um, you know, hopefully with this new partnership, I think you and me will get heard by more than the three or four people that follow us right now. So it should be good. <laughs> <laughs> My mom, your, uh, your wife and two of our friends. <laughs>
0: Yeah, my wife does not listen to this podcast. Good point. (laughs) You
1: guys probably wouldn't be still married if that was the
0: case. That's right. Now, you just can't go getting this – you know, claiming this celebrity status now. You know, you got to remember the little guys like me and Furter and Corey and uh, all the, you know, the the guys. You know, your your bros from back in the day.
1: Oh man, no no celebrity status here at all because you're absolutely right. Whenever I'm around you guys, I am brought back down to earth real quick. <laughs> I'm reminded of my place on the totem pole. That means you've made it. <laughs> that means you've made it. No, no, just just trying to keep my if, head above if water. If someone's
0: knocking you down, if someone's knocking you down, especially your buddies, right? They're giving you shit. That means that means you're doing something right.
1: It's <laughs> a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, man, exciting exciting times, and um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to where things go and. Excited to see uh, what kind of cool stuff you continue to do with Sportsman's Nation, and man, we we got a lot we got a lot going on these days, buddy. We are now real quickly here. I don't want to go too far down our usual rabbit holes, but for several months now, even even last year, we were talking about some of the things that you were going to be doing to help prepare yourself for future hunting seasons, and one of those things that you talked about was investing in your relationship, right? and uh right you got you've got a great big brownie point trip coming up don't you yeah man i I tell you
0: my wife got mad at me the uh this was a while ago she's like we haven't even gone on a vacation or a honeymoon yet uh and you're planning all these elk hunting trips and mule deer hunting trips and and all this stuff and you haven't taken me anywhere and I'm just like, I took you to the state fair one year. <laughs> <And> <laughs> obviously that, you know, that doesn't count. But, uh, so I said, you know what, this is going to be good for not only her, but for us to get away from the kids, which is much needed, um, to take some stress out of her life and give her, which is with, what is her dream vacation. And I'm taking her to, let's see, next. See, so you're listening to this on a Thursday, By this time, the following Tuesday, I will be in an airplane flying to San Francisco with my wife, and we're going to enjoy a day in San Francisco and then three days in, like, Sonoma and Napa Valley. My wife loves wine, so we're going to do that whole, you know— take the wine tours and go eat at some nice restaurants and maybe even fit in a, a hike in the redwoods and, you know, take a dip in the Pacific ocean. So we, uh, we got a big, a big vacation coming up and uh, basically I'm doing this to keep my wife happy. So she continues to allow me to go on these,
1: uh, these big trips. <laughs> that's awesome, dude. Well, I think that's, uh that's, Deer beginners, deer hunter guide tip number one is make sure to invest and right. prioritize your family, right? Because that uh, that's right. a good thing. Makes the world go round.
0: When the wife's happy, you can hunt more. <laughs> that's a fact.
1: My wife literally has a sign over my bed that says "Happy wife, happy life." <laughs> a constant <laughs> daily reminder. <laughs> hey, speaking of your yeah. uh, speaking of your yeah. Napa Valley, Sonoma portion of the trip, uh, not too far from there is point reyes i think it's a national lakeshore i think it's point reyes national lakeshore i think or not lakeshore sea whatever it is um yep really recommend checking that out if you're looking for a hike that's close to the redwoods i think it's just south of it really amazing very cool place for some hiking on the ocean we saw sea lions and big trees and beautiful sights. so that's one you might want to add to the itinerary or look at at least
0: Yep it's all it's already on the list. Nice,
1: nice. Okay, so let's we're we're gonna stay focused today. (laughs) Um, So we're gonna have Connor come on here in a second. He's a friend of mine who joined me a couple weeks ago for his very first hunt ever. So in a second here, we're gonna call him in, get him to tell us a little bit about that first hunt, and then um, he he already has talked about being interested in hunting again in the future, maybe trying deer hunting. So. That's why he's going to be here with us to to play that role and to really get himself ready for the hunt. So are you ready, Dan? Let's do it. All right. Let's take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties, and then we will get Connor on the line. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Adam Hayden, a land specialist out of Ohio. And Adam is going to be telling us about how to develop a checklist as a property buyer.
2: one thing that i would suggest uh, whenever i you know if i was going in to look at a property i would sit down and i would just ask myself several questions a you know how big of a property do i want b obviously what is my budget and then you know i would go in to see like the just detailed specifics um you know am, am, am i wanting big open woods am i wanting crop fields around just depending on where you're at in the country um You know, am I wanting water on the property? And if water's not there, do I have capabilities of putting a pond in myself? Um, You know, there's just so many things that you can think about um, and write actually on paper and make a list that will help you being, you know, help a buyer uh, whenever they're looking at properties physically or filtering through them online. They can actually go through and eliminate properties or check off properties um, but then also just kind of keep a list. I mean, if you, if you narrow your, what you're wanting to look at down to three, four, or five properties and you have a checklist, even in an Excel file or something else, so easy to go in there and then check off and look at the ones that have hit uh, more criteria than the others and it would help you choose the property that's best for you.
1: If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Adam currently
0: has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Hayden. That's H-A-Y-D-E-N.
1: All right, we're back, and with me and Dan is my buddy, Connor. And I had this idea of doing this beginner's guide to deer hunting, You know, as we mentioned, for a while now. But then, just recently, I said, you know, we could make this a lot better if we had a brand new hunter to kind of check us as we go. And Connor, you jumped to my mind right away because we just, a couple weeks ago, spent some time hunting together and that was your very first hunt right
3: my very first one ever it was actually my first time ever
1: shooting a gun as well <laughs> yeah can, can you can you walk folks through how that happened I mean what the scenario was because we were going on this turkey hunt in southwest Michigan and um, pick it pick it up from there you're meeting us in southwest Michigan how'd you get there and what happened right when you did <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit more background, too. So I grew up in Chicago in, in an urban setting. I've lived in New York for a few years, and now I'm living out in Los Angeles. So, you know, in all those cities, just being a, a big urban dweller, you know, hunting has never been a huge focal point for the people I've been around. And it's funny, Mark, one of the podcasts I was listening to recently where you said you did your internship in New York and it was kind of driving you crazy because you were surrounded by all this concrete all the time, and there was nowhere for you to hunt and there's nowhere for you to be in wilderness. So that's kind of how I've always spent my life. And that's part of the reason I've never really had that experience. Um, but no, man, a few weeks ago, going up to Michigan with you, Steve and, uh, and Giannis was, was really actually one of the coolest experiences of my life. And what made it even more special too, was the fact that, you know, all three of you guys are from Michigan and you already had a lay of the land. And I could tell it was pretty nostalgia inducing for you guys as well. So, uh, You know, we got there on the Friday night, Um, you know, we were a bit later than expected and we go right out to the, uh, take some target practice and like I said, I had never shot a gun before in my life, any type of gun, Uh, maybe a pellet gun when I was eight or nine years old, but uh, we get out there, you know, we're sitting down and, you know, I take my first shot and I had no idea the type of kickback that I'd be experiencing, so it felt like I got a nice charlie horse right (laughs) in my, uh, right in my shoulder. Those turkey ones. Yeah, being around all the guys, I I didn't want to. You know, show them that it actually hurt more more than. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, the night was great, and I I actually didn't do a, a lot of sleeping the night before the actual hunt. We, we got I, spent- I gotta
1: I gotta stop you really quick though, Connor. You missed yeah. one important detail. Your very first time shooting a gun was literally after dark by the headlights of a truck in the backyard because of how late you guys got in. So it was like, <laughs> welcome to camp, turn on the headlamps, and let's get them shooting. <laughs>
3: exactly, exactly. And, we, uh, and I think uh, I took three shots that night, too. So that's all I had going in. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny part is, um, that night, like I said, I didn't do much sleeping. So I was listening to YouTube sounds of turkey calls. So I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be that guy that's holding everyone back. I want to help out in any sort of capacity I can. So you know what? Maybe if I'm able to identify these turkey sounds, then I'll be somewhat useful tomorrow. <laughs> so we wake up at 4:15, uh, crack of dawn. We get out there at around five, and we're pairing off in twos. Uh, it is me and the Latvian eagle, Giannis Patelis. <laughs> and of course, I you know I'm an eager beaver when I get out there. I'm trying to you know prove my worth, and so. Every single, every single sound I hear, I go, Giannis, Giannis, there's a gobbler over there. There's a gobbler, And he goes, Connor, no, no, no. That's a crane. That's not a turkey. <laughs> Next sound I hear, I go, oh, Giannis, Giannis, I got a read on one over there. He goes, no, nope, that's also not a turkey. So then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to shut my mouth, and I'm going to let the pro do his work here. And so within about 10 or 15 minutes, Giannis gets a great read on a few birds, sets us up perfectly. And he basically just tells me, all right, Connor, I'm going to set up the decoys. I'm going to do the calls. All I need you to do is sit against that tree, turn the safety on the gun, and wait for me to tell you to shoot. I go, okay, that sounds great. He sets up the decoys. He comes back, sits next to me, starts doing some calls, starts doing some calls. And literally within about seven or eight minutes, two birds come like screaming down this meadow. And they're coming in real fast. And so my heart's starting to beat. The adrenaline is full force. You know, I, I unleashed the, the safety, put the gun on my knee, and Giannis just taps me on the shoulder. He goes, now. And I took the shot, and it was kind of one of those. I've heard you guys, some of you guys talk about this before. It was kind of one of those blackout moments. Um, super exhilarating, super amazing, and uh Yeah. Took the shot, and lo and behold, there he went. And, you know, one of the things you told me, Mark, was you know, even if you don't get a turkey that day, just enjoy the experience. Just enjoy the sights and the sounds, being out there, enjoy the camaraderie, because that's also what it's all about. And so for me, it was, uh, it was extremely exhilarating and eye-opening and uh, couldn't have had a better first experience.
1: It was, it was so cool that it worked out that way for you too, because like you just mentioned, you know, the night before I was trying to make sure we set expectations, you know, relatively low, didn't want you to think that it was going to happen super easy right away. And, um, cause usually it, it doesn't, but, uh, miraculously this time it really did. Um, so that was cool. And not only did you have that success right away in the morning, but like 10 minutes later I was hunting half mile away or something or whatever it was. And I got a bird first thing in the morning. And maybe 10 minutes later after that, our other friend, Jason got his first Turkey ever. (laughs) Um, so it was a magical morning. It was just kind of all the stars aligned and made for just that perfect situation. Um, What what was it like though? Because you you probably heard if you listened to that one podcast where me and Steve and Giannis were talking about some of our early experiences. You probably heard us talk about you know what that moment was like when we walked up on our first deer or the first animal that we had that we had killed and hunt that hunted and killed. And what was that like for you? Was it I don't know. What were you feeling when you realized I I just took this animal's life? I'm gonna eat this animal. Anything there, or was it all just kind of a blur?
3: Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it was pretty exhilarating. I uh, I've always been a a very carnivorous person. I've always loved eating meat, and you know, the way I thought about it was, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the, the meat that I eat, those animals are unfortunately you know killed in a lot more inhumane.ly ways, in inhumane ways. Um, so you know, I it was it was it was sort of a a bit of a shock at some point, but you know, I, I think it was more exhilarating than anything and um it, it was just kind of a really cool experience and then to be able to consume that you know eat it a week later was was uh, was great as well even though you know my, my shot wasn't great because i i kind of got it in the breast so i was i was spitting out a lot of bbs when i was eating it so there's a lot
1: of <laughs> <equipment>. <laughs> yeah how how was the how was the prep in the eating was it pretty good what did what did you uh, what kind of recipe did you try
3: um, you know, I, I, actually had a family member help me out. I've never been, been much of a cook. I, uh, with my job, I've been working long hours. So I'm a, a big takeout guy. So I, uh, <laughs> I had to consult uh, a real chef to help me out. And I, I hate to admit that, but that's, that's the, uh, the God's honest truth.
1: That's, it must've been pretty cool still to eat that and know that, uh, you were part of that process from beginning to end, right? Exactly. I did have to give uh, you
3: know my family member forewarning that she might be spitting out BBs as well, so just chew slowly.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you uh, you you breasted and cleaned that bird out yourself too. Um, that was an interesting experience, right?
3: It, it certainly was, but uh, you're not giving yourself enough credit. You you did uh, kind of walk me right through it, which uh, I needed all the help I can get. But um, yeah, no, that that really was.
1: Yeah, it was awesome. Um, and one of the first things you said, though, I remember me and me and Dirt got back from our hunt, and you and Janis got back from your hunt. We met at the truck, and you were starting to tell your story. And then you you said like I got the I got the itch I got the I got the feeling now like the fever. You you were already like let's go hunt another one. You wanted to get going after more birds. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah. you you we only got one tag in Michigan. Um, but then I asked you very soon after that, and I want to. Ask you again to still see if you still feel the same way, but are you still interested in uh, in a future hunt again?
3: Absolutely. And I'll say this: it's 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 not even about getting the animal as much, but not to be redundant, it was uh, it was the camaraderie the whole weekend. You know, it was getting out in nature and being more attuned to sights and sounds that maybe I would have taken for granted before. And getting away from, you know, being on my phone or being on my computer or being in this urban setting where it's just, you know, car horns and, and people yelling. It was, it was a really eye-opening experience. So, yes, sign me up. Uh, let's already get planning on the next one.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's so cool for me to hear. I love hearing your thoughts and your experiences from that um, because it is something that, you know, Dan and myself and so many of others, we have, we have this deep love for this for this activity for this lifestyle and there's so many people that have never been exposed to it in any way shape or form and sometimes there's negative kind of connotations or, or stereotypes around it that make them think that it's something they never would want to get involved in um but to hear someone have such a positive experience like you did uh, that's that's encouraging so um that's kind of why i want to get you on the podcast now though connor was because i know you're interested in going on future hunt i think that future hunt should be a deer hunt so um me and Dan are going to try to prepare you for that future hunt. If you're up for a little bit of deer hunting 101, what do you say?
3: I, uh, I am a perfect student for deer hunting 101 because uh, I'm starting at square one. I got my notepad out right now. So I'm ready to
1: go. <laughs> awesome. Dan, uh, any thoughts before we dive into the curriculum? Did, did you like Connor's story? And, and doesn't that, isn't that like a great thing to hear?
0: Right. Now, here's the deal. Because oftentimes when you have a season or your first hunting experience, like what he had, Connor, I'm just preparing you that hunting is not always 100% guaranteed success. So for me, especially, I I went years and years without being successful and had to appreciate nature. Um, So just remember that next year, if you don't get a bird or if you don't run into a turkey to... Stay patient, stay calm, and you're going to get frustrated because we all do, but uh, it, the, every time you have a really shitty season and you come out of it in the next season is great, you you just appreciate it that much more.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I totally understand that, too, and that's one of the things that, that Mark and Steve were, were telling uh, Jason and I as well is like, listen, man, you guys were spoiled getting one within the first hour. That, is, that does not happen. <laughs> Um, so no, that, yeah, it's definitely something I got in the back of my mind for sure.
1: It's also, yeah, go ahead, dude.
3: Also, do you have a girlfriend right now? Uh, I do not. I, uh, (laughs) okay, good,
0: good. Because if you had a girlfriend or a wife right now and you start getting into hunting, that's just a recipe for disaster, man. So, (laughs) so now that you're falling in love with this, it, it might be, uh, it's definitely a conversation that's going to have to be had with whoever, you know, your next partner is. Like, hey, I'm a hunter now. I uh,
1: I'll, I I go away for long periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be uh, good to be getting a head start <laughs> before the relationship. Um, but to your earlier point too, Dan, that's almost like the perfect place to start when it comes to when it comes to this. That being, to have you know, reasonable expectations. Like it it should not be your expectation that when you head out for a hunt, especially early on, that you're going to get a deer or a turkey or a squirrel or a rabbit or whatever it is that you're hunting, that you're going to get one right away or every time. Um, Inherent in any hunt is it's a challenge. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of mistakes and learning from those mistakes and getting better. Um, So one of the things I feel like happens with a lot of people that maybe don't have a mentor or someone who can kind of walk them through all this stuff is that, They go out there, and then it doesn't go well, and they try it a handful of times maybe, and they just get frustrated, or they get disheartened, and they give up. Um, So I think right out the gate gate, don't give up. Like Realize it's going to be a challenge, but it is so worth it once you start wrapping your head around these things, and it takes time. And um, for context, I grew up in a hunting family. Like I grew up learning stuff related to hunting right from the time I was walking, pretty much. And I still didn't kill my first deer until I was... uh, I think I was 18 years old or something like that. So I had a lot of years, a lot of time spent hunting where I never filled a tag. Um, so, and I think Dan, you were you know a teenager too, right?
0: Oh, oh I started uh, deer hunting. Nothing serious. I didn't come from a, a deer hunting or a hunting family. We we fished, and uh, my uncles did some trapping, but there was no hunting in our family uh, until I was about. 12 or 14. I can't really remember when I started, but I didn't kill my first deer with a bow until I was 26.
1: So there you go. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, bumps in the road along that way, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And you guys, you guys both prefer bows.
1: Well, yeah, I would say that I think for not everyone, but for a lot of people, once you get like really serious into hunting and you do it a lot, you just want to find ways to extend your season. You want to have as much time spent outdoors or as many different opportunities. Um, And so, yeah, moving to, to archery equipment is a way to do that. It makes it much more challenging. It also opens up much longer seasons Um, and it's, it is a different experience. Um, So that's a good point though. I think most of what we'll talk about here today will kind of, I'll try to frame once we get into some of the strategy and stuff, maybe we should like, as we go through this, Dan, we'll say, if you're, if you're hunting with a bow, you know, think about X. If you're hunting with a gun, you can think about Y. Um, and that's another thing I guess I would say too, is that if you're beginning using a firearm, probably is what most people use to get started simply because it's a little bit easier to figure that out. It's a little bit more of a I think people become more comfortable with the firearm more quickly than with a bow. Um, so would you agree with that, Dan, that for most people, starting with a firearm might be the best way, unless they're already like really interested in archery or already experienced with archery. Um, if you don't have like a passion for that right off the get go, a firearm might be the, the easiest way to get started and get in the field. Would you, is that about right?
0: You know, I'm going to agree with an asterisk because I've, because the statistics are showing that crossbow hunting is on the rise big time so if you kind of want the best of both worlds let's say like uh, a state like ohio i believe allows crossbow hunting or other states that allow you to use a crossbow to hunt that might be that might be a a good first start for somebody um, just because you get to have the archery season but use a weapon that's a little bit more accurate uh, and have some more long-range uh, opportunities than than a bow. That's
1: a really good point. That's a very good point. It's kind of the best of both worlds for a beginner. That is a great way to go. Um, right. I'm glad you mentioned that. So here here's kind of where I want to go with this, and I'm kind of lay out like the the plan, the outline of at least in my head how I, how I'm going to walk you through this, Connor. I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about kind of the biology and behavior of deer. So kind of get you just a little bit of a foundation as far as how deer operate, what matters to them, the things that we as hunters need to know about them. And then we're going to talk through a little bit about how to find a place to hunt, how to then, you know, get, you know, prepared for the hunt, you know, so where to look for deer, where to set up, where you're going to hunt, some of those things that you just need to know before you actually have the hunting season open. Then we'll talk about things to be thinking about when you actually go out there in the woods on that day when you are going to hunt. Stuff like you know, when should I go out? How long should I stay out? What should I do while I'm out there in the woods? Things like that. Um, we'll talk about what happens when you're actually about to take a shot at a deer, and then finally what to do afterwards. So how do you you know how do you deal with it? Gut it, clean it, get it out of the woods. A little bit about processing. A little bit about you know how to get that in the freezer and. Make sure you've got good food to eat. So that's kind of the direction at a very, very high level I'm thinking of taking. Um, but we'll, I'm sure we'll take a winding path to get there. Um, so first off, and Dan, you jump in here whenever you, whenever you want. But first I thought we should talk about deer, the animal itself. All right, so white-tailed deer are, if not one of the very most prolific mammals in in North America, or at least in the United States, and really across North America. They're almost across the entire lower 48 states. So as far as like big game species, um, they are probably the greatest opportunity out there for people because they're, they're so present. They're very adaptable. They can live outside of New York City. They can live in the farm country of Iowa by Dan. They can live... Um, in northern Idaho, in the mountains, they can live in southern Florida in the swamps. They're kind of all over the place. So it's, it's the kind of animal that is most likely going to be somewhere near you. And they are a, a beautiful, fascinating, interesting animal. They're a challenging animal to understand and hunt. And they provide some of the absolute best food out there. I mean, venison is, is just off the charts as far as good protein to eat. Um, but they're smart. They're cagey. So a few things you need to know about a deer. If you're going to try to hunt a deer, you need to realize that they have three senses that are constantly providing them kind of their their defense mechanisms to make sure that they can stay alive. Number one, their strongest sense is smell. So they have tremendous noses. Um, Their sense of smell compared to like us humans, I don't remember what the ratio is, but I'd say it's something like a thousand times more scent receiving kind of, uh, receptacles or whatever it might be in that nose that allows them to pick up just so much greater detail in smell they can smell from a much much greater distance so that's something you always have to be thinking about and this is different than turkeys because turkeys they don't really have that strong sense of smell so when we were hunting those turks we never really considered what if you know if they might smell us or anything we were just worried about them seeing us But with deer, you have to think about scent all the time. So you'll hear us talk a little bit later about worrying about our wind. When we say we got to watch where our wind is blowing, that's basically where our scent is going and making sure the deer aren't going to be where our scent is blowing to, because that's a good way to scare those deer away right away.
3: That's that's super interesting, and and that does provide an added layer of of challenge. Are there certain, and this is going to be a complete wrong term, certain like perfumes you guys would have to wear when you go deer hunting that would sort of lessen your own smell or you know make a deer less suspicious that humans might be you know in close proximity
1: yeah so kind of the exact opposite so rather than like using some kind of well some people do use a cover scent but yeah you need to do a handful of different things to try to minimize your scent as much as possible or keep deer from smelling that human scent so there's tons and tons of stuff that people do to try to eliminate their scent so we'll we'll refer to that as scent control um, so things like showering and washing yourself and washing your clothes in scent free soaps and scent free detergents so stuff that cleans but has no additional odor um, we me and Dan will you know store all of our clothes in like airtight bins or bags we will keep them outside or in our garage or somewhere where they're not gonna pick up smells um we won't get changed into our hunting clothes until you know we're actually outside about to go hunting, so it's different than again turkey hunting you know before we went turkey hunting, we were inside eating breakfast, wearing all of our camo and stuff. I would never do that when I'm deer hunting. I would wear totally different clothes when I'm inside the house, and then when I get outside, actually like outside the truck, then I put my camouflage hunting clothes on then, and then I walk out to go hunting, so very different in that way um. There's different kinds of sprays that you can use that can eliminate some scent. They destroy some scent molecules. Um, There's a whole slew of different things out there. I don't know if we want to go into all the, all the details, but lots of stuff there. Um, Dan at a high level, is there anything else you'd add on the, on the scent piece?
0: Yeah. Just to put it into kind of perspective, I read an article a while ago where um, a guy mentioned that deer smell how humans see so if i look at you i can see that you're wearing a shirt i can see that you have hair and you have skin and you have shoes on and you have pants on a deer can smell in the detail that we can see in so they could smell your shirt and smell your hair and smell your shoes
1: Mm. yeah that's kind of how they go about their world too like i think our number like as you said like a lot of how we function in daily life is based on the things we see and that's yep. kind of the way it is with deer of course or sight is important to them too but they make a lot of decisions based on what they smell they communicate a lot through smells as well um we'll talk about this a little bit later connor but you might remember that one day you and me were walking through the woods and i pointed out something i call a scrape and we talked about some of the things that are communicated there um yep. that's all through uh, mostly through smells Um, so, so scent is just a huge deal in the white tailed deer world, any kind of deer world. Um, and so that's just something that as a beginner hunter, definitely be thinking about that. And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into this as far as how that impacts how you hunt. But important to know deer have incredible noses. They also have great eyes. They've got really terrific eyesight. Um, they have much better low light sight than we humans do so they can see really well after dark especially at kind of the edges of dark so early in the morning um, just at first light or late in the evening just before it gets dark that is like their prime time to see so that is something we always need to be uh, considered about when we're out in the woods trying to hunt them so just like turkeys you have to be really slow when you move you need to try not to move as much as possible um, because they've got a great eye for catching movement And if they see movement or if they see human or they see something that doesn't seem quite right, lots of times that's going to be enough to get them to run away. Um, They've got different uh, color vision. They don't see as many colors as we do. That's why people wear bright orange when they hunt sometimes, because that's something that humans see very well, but deer don't see it. Um, So that's a, a great way to make sure that, you know, we as hunters during firearm season see other hunters out there and don't accidentally shoot towards their direction or anything like that. Um, but yeah, sight have to be very aware of, and then finally sound, they have tremendous ears. They can hear from a very far distance. They have the ability to kind of pinpoint locations of sounds even better than we do as humans. So lots of times you'll see something where maybe you'll make a noise to try to simulate another deer. And if a deer hears that, they can sometimes get right to the bottom of like your tree, like right where you are, they'll be able to pinpoint you from a hundred yards away And be right next to you just based off, you know, one or two little sounds you might've made. Um, but that also means as a hunter, they can also pinpoint a sound that you make and have that scare them. So if you make, if you, you know, if you talk or if you cough or if you, you know, drop your gun or your bow and arrow or something like that, that's going to spell disaster. Um, so I remember as a kid when I was starting hunting, it was just the, the the bare bones basics that I knew that were most important was don't move or at least don't move fast. Um and then don't make loud noises. Like I was so constantly whispering, constantly very very slow, subtle movements, constantly trying to be hidden. Um those are those very bare bone basics things of if you're out there in the woods hunting deer, you need to be thinking about that. And then layer over the fact that wind and scent matters a lot and those are the main things you got to be thinking about when you're out there as far as how a deer operates its defense kind of system to uh to stay alive. Um
3: it, it, it sounds like a deer has some of the best sensory perception of of any animal out there,
1: basically. They're right up there, yeah. I mean, they're right up there with any other ungulate like a four-legged mammal, hoofed mammal like elk, deer, moose, all these critters have got just tremendous senses. And I mean, they're right. They've been hunted for thousands and millions of years by whether it's humans or wolves or whatever other predator might be out there. So they've developed a lot of these things to, uh, to try to stay alive. Um, anything from a sense standpoint or high level biology standpoint we should touch on Dan?
0: And I think, uh, I, I'm going to call this a defense mechanism because they, they have the most outstanding patience of any animal that I've seen in the woods, they, they will sit there and they will s- watch whatever they don't like or look or smell until they can have enough, uh, I guess they can make their decision, you know, yes, it's safe or no, it's not safe. And if that takes them an hour, they will stand still in one spot for one hour until they are able to, you know, say it. You know, going down this trail is safe, or uh, I need to turn around and go back the other way. Uh, the the patience that these animals have has kept them alive, like like we said, for thousands of years. Mm.
3: Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things that I've always been curious on um, on referring to the biology are the antlers, and and Mark, this goes back to you finding. I think I think it was Holyfield antlers in February. Are there certain indicators from a deer's antlers of their overall health or stature, et cetera?
1: <laughs> man, it's a good question.s
0: <laughs> This is, that's not a that's like that's an in
3: depth question, man.
1: That's good stuff, Connor. You've been doing your I homework. Didn't
3: mean, I didn't mean to bring the heat this early on, but <laughs> I, I, I've always been curious.
1: So, so I'll give you antler one hundred and one here, and to, to answer your question at a really high level, yes. Definitely. Um, So deer, you know, they grow, you might might not know this, deer regrow their antlers every year. So they they drop them in the winter and they start growing them again in the spring. And so they're brand new antlers every year that they grow just in a handful of months, which is pretty incredible. Um, One of the fastest growing tissues, I think, out there, Um, either... At faster than, or very close to, as fast as cancerous cells grow. So it's pretty remarkable that they that they grow this new appendage of sorts just in one season. Um, but yeah, so antler growth depends on a couple different things. There is a genetic component, um, but a lot of how big antlers get or how fully um, they reach the antler growing potential does have to do with how healthy that deer is, um, the nutrition available. Sometimes the climate, so if there's a drought or if there's good, good water that year, a bunch of different habitat things like that can impact how much antler growth a deer will get in a given year. And actually some studies have shown recently that then how large a deer's antlers are ends up being sometimes a selective characteristic when it comes to females breeding. So they will select for bigger antler deer, bigger antler bucks, because that's a sign that this is a healthier, more superior buck for her to propagate her um, genetics. So a lot of interesting stuff with antlers. Um, And then of course, they're, they're very unique. I think antlers, uh, you're, when you hear a lot of hunters talk, we talk a lot about, you know, the rack on a deer. And I think a lot of times it's because it it oftentimes is the most unique feature of a buck. Um, It's that Kind of, it's like with a person, it's our face, right? I see your face, I see Dan's face, I see whoever's face, and that's kind of how we identify that person. Um, lots of times, deer's faces more often have somewhat similar look to them, but the antlers are always very unique. They're obviously unique, um, and that's kind of like at least to humans. Lots of times, that's kind of that major identifier and um, makes to be some some interesting things too. So yeah, with Holyfield, I picked up his antler finally this year, and. Um, He's uh he's a relatively healthy relatively old buck that uh makes him an interesting one to uh to chase after. Um, so yeah, uh did I miss anything there, Dan?
0: I don't think so. What I will say is as we get f- further into this podcast and and talking about the beginning hunter, right? Someone who has never hunted before. Yes, that's a, a, a those are nice fun facts, but I don't think antlers should determine what a beginning hunter should go after right away. So it's it's great to know these, you know, these fun facts and stuff, but I would recommend that antlers should not be a determining factor in what you're going for as a new hunter.
1: 100% agree. I think that, expectat- that you know goals and expectations, again, are, are so important, I think, for beginners. And, yeah, any deer is a huge accomplishment. I think, you know, especially when you're at, right out the gate, just trying to have some success, trying to get some meat in the freezer. Um, any deer that you can get a shot at is a great opportunity and you know a great place to start. And some people never care about different things. Some people eventually, once they hunt a lot, then they decide, okay, now I want to target just bucks or I want to target older deer or I want to target this deer. Different ways to, to change that experience, to lengthen that experience. Um, but yeah, from a beginner, that's such a great point. Because a lot of the media out there, a lot of the hunting media does talk a ton about antlers and about big bucks and things like that. Which, as you said, Dan, they're fun. It's interesting. Really cool. But as a new hunter, please don't get too caught up in that. Um, just get some experience. Enjoy this experience. Um, get some meat in the freezer. So, yeah. Antlers are interesting. But that's not not what it's all about. Um, Got it. So... We talked about some high-level senses. We talked about antlers. A few things when it comes to deer behavior or things that matter to deer that I think are important. There's really four things that deer's life revolves around at a high, high level. They care about food. They care about water. They care about breeding opportunities at one time of year. And then they care about security, staying alive. So as a hunter, we need to be understanding those things too. So we'll want to understand what deer eat. We want to understand where water is that deer might go to. We want to understand what deer do when they're breeding because that impacts how we hunt them. And then we want to also understand how are they trying to stay safe so that we can take advantage of that as hunters. Um, so a couple things on food. Deer food is going to be different based on where you're hunting. So if you're hunting deer in Texas versus Michigan versus New Hampshire. They're going to have different types of food sources that they like the most. Um, So it's probably not worth us trying to go through and list every single different thing that deer will eat. But I would just say for any new hunter out there, I would try to talk to someone local to where you hunt and to where you're going to be and try to understand, like, what are the preferred food sources here for deer? So in Michigan, where you and me were hunting turkeys, um, you know, there's a lot of agricultural, you know, farm ground where we were at. And so deer are going to eat a lot of those crops. They're going to eat that corn. They're going to eat the soybeans. They're going to eat the alfalfa or the winter wheat. Um, they're going to eat acorns that fall from oak trees. They're going to eat all sorts of different bushes and forbs and different things in the forest. So, so that's just something that I would talk to someone local and figure out what are they eating around here. And that's going to help you figure things out in the future. Um, water is kind of a given. Ponds, streams, lakes, little water holes, that kind of stuff matters to deer. Security.
3: What re- I, I was just going to ask, what are um, what are some of the ideal regions for both you know climate and food supply um, in the U.S. for, for deer?
1: Mm. So they're present almost in every state in the lower forty-eight. Um, they're they're widely spread, but as far as like the very best deer habitat in the country, I think most people would agree that it's in like the Midwest. So kind of around, you know, Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Ohio, Indiana, Southern Michigan, kind of like that corn belt of the country, just because it has, you know, great habitat, tons and tons of food, um, a lot of different things like that 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 just allow for kind of an optimal situation for deer. Um, And climate too. The winters aren't too hard there, but there are seasons. It's just kind of a, a good level playing field that deer seem to do very well in Um, would you agree with that Dan
0: absolutely and like we keep getting back to is I mean they'll eat bark off trees they'll eat cactuses they'll eat um, whatever they have to eat to survive and they do a good job of of surviving there
1: yeah they're very adaptable very adaptable I mean there's there'll be deer in neighborhoods you know feeding on your landscaping in some places so uh, they can make a lot of things work Um, but one of the very most important things to deer is is a feeling of safety, security. So in some situations, in most situations, they're going to try to avoid human activity. So as a hunter, something you're going to have to think about when you start hunting is trying to make sure the deer don't know that you're there because if they do know you're there, they're going to go to other places or they're only going to move at night or they're going to change their behavior in some other way that's that's not going to be good for you. So at a super high level, it's just always good to think about what are these deer doing? Because they want food, they want water, and they want to stay away from humans and other predators. Now, when it comes to breeding, they do some different funky things, and that happens in the fall. Usually for like us here in Michigan or Iowa, usually in late October into November is when the breeding season is happening. And then they, they start doing kind of like, you know... When guys go to the bar, they sometimes act crazy because they're trying to impress women. (laughs) That kind of thing happens with deer too. During that time period, they start acting a little bit different because they're trying to find mating opportunities. So, as a hunter, that can be one of the very best times of year to be in the woods because they they move a lot more. They're more, if they're going to make a mistake, that's the one time of year they might do it. Um, So, wherever you're hunting to, you'll want to find out when that, you know, the specifics of that breeding season occur. And, um, that's going to help you choose, you know, when to hunt sometimes as well. Um, a couple of other things on a behavior note, I talked about crepuscular earlier, Dan, basically yep. that just means that deer are an animal that move the most at the edges of the day. So they move most at dawn and they move most at dusk. Those are the two peaks of deer movement during every 24 hour period. So that hour or two around first light in the morning, that hour or two at last light in the evening which is why those are the two best times to hunt on a given day. Um, And it's kind of similar, you know, Connor, how when we went turkey hunting, we turkey hunted in the early morning. And then, you know, we were turkey hunting in the evening as well. But we hunted even sometimes during the middle of the day. There's not as much middle of the day movement, usually for deer as there is with turkeys. Um, Another thing to know about deer is that they follow generally consistent patterns. They've got a basic kind of, schedule kind of like we do you know we most of us we wake up we have some breakfast we go to work come back we dinner fiddle around go to bed deer kind of do the same thing but their general pattern for most of the year is that you know in the early morning they're out feeding they come back to a bedding area, like a general region where they typically lay down for most of the day in some kind of thick cover. So thick brush or trees or somewhere they feel safe. They spend most of the daylight hours bedded down in a safe zone. And then in the evening they get back up again and they go start feeding. And then overnight, then they kind of rotate between feeding and bedding and doing different things like that. But generally there's that bedding to feeding, feeding to bedding pattern. Um, So if you as a hunter learn where deer feed and then you learn where they bed, you can start to know where you need to be as a hunter. Um, so I don't know, Dan it, it, it at the highest of levels here, if we're talking about the important behavior to know about deer, those were a couple of the things I thought would be important to know. And then again, you know, I, I think I touched on enough during the breeding season, which people refer to as the rut. They, they changed some of that behavior. But um, anything else from just a what deer do that we need to cover before talking about, you know, okay, now how do we hunt them?
0: No, my question is to Connor. I mean, you just got an earful in a very short period of time. Are there any questions that you have right now that we can maybe go into a little bit more detail in of what Mark maybe just
3: covered? Yeah, so I was curious on as a beginning hunter and who someone – who is unfamiliar with some of the indicators you guys are pointing out, how often, I, I mean, I'm sure the answer is as is, is much as you possibly can, but, you know, during the off season, how much would you recommend, you know, sort of an unseasoned hunter to go out and sort of familiarize themselves with these indicators so they can get a better sense for, you know, some of the breeding behaviors and maybe some of the security behaviors before the actual season and the pursuit starts?
1: What would you say, Dan?
3: Well, here's what I'm going to tell you for
0: someone who's brand new and you want to, and like Mark said, they have a majority of the day they're lying down in the woods, right? They're bedding. And then towards the end of the day, it starts to get dark. They're going to stand up out of there. They're going to walk down some trail and they're going to go to a food source or a water source uh, or maybe both. So what I would recommend doing for someone who's brand new is to get in the woods and try to identify some of those places just, and it doesn't even have to be extremely detailed. Just maybe look for an old rub or look for, walk through the woods. And if you kick up a deer, you just, you know, put a mental note there, say, okay, well, I saw a deer here. And then when it's time to hunt that following, you know, that fall, then you have a good idea of actually where to
1: start. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think, and to your point, Connor, as much as possible, it definitely is the answer because the more time you spend out here in these habitats where deer are, the more you're going to be able to learn this stuff. And, and we call this in like the hunting world, we call it scouting. So when you go on the property where you can hunt and scout, you can learn a lot of stuff that will help you when hunting season actually opens up. So most deer hunting seasons open up in the fall, so either in September or October, and they usually run into the early winter. Most places close at the end of December or somewhere in January, give or take. Um, so in the spring and summer, if you can get out and walk around the areas, you're going to hunt. And like Dan said, if you see some deer that go running away during the middle of the day, then you just learned where they were bedded. So that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. If you have a map with you, circle that on your map and say, Hey, there were deer bedded here. Or if you're out there in the evening and you're walking by a field and you see a bunch of deer standing in the middle of that field and they're feeding on something. All of a sudden now you've located a feeding, a food source. You've located somewhere where they're going in the evenings to feed. So that's a huge, important thing to know. So circle that on your map and do that as often as you can. You'll start to have this map that shows the bedding areas, the feeding areas, and then maybe you'll see some trails. And basically, it'll look like a, like a hiking trail kind of in the woods where deer walk up and down this thing so many times going from a bed to a food source. You can start to see how they travel through the landscape. And so once you identify those three features, it'll start to, it'll start to be almost like a diagram that you can look at and say, okay, here's where they're coming from. Here's where they're going to, here's the travel path they're taking in between. Now, all of a sudden, if you start knowing when they're doing each, so we know that deer are going to be feeding around those two points of the day, early morning, late evening. And we know that during the middle of the day, they're going to be in those bedding areas. You can start to say, okay, if I'm trying to hunt a deer in the morning, I know he's going to be feeding in this field probably because I saw them out there doing this and I know they're going to be going back to that chunk of woods because I know I scared some deer out of there before then the day. Now, you know, okay, in the morning they're in area A, they're heading to area B. I'm going to be sitting in between the two. So that's like a, at a very high level, that's how we start kind of formulating how to hunt these deer because different than turkeys, a lot of deer hunting is kind of ambush related. So with turkey hunting, right, we walked out there in the morning and we listened for them. We heard them gobbling, we walked over to where they're kind of near where they're gobbling, and then we sat down and we called them, we brought them to us. In most deer hunting situations, that's usually not how it goes. Usually you try to understand what you think the deer is gonna do and then you set up and sit and wait for him to do that. So you kind of set up this ambush because you think he's gonna come through this area, or you think he's gonna be coming to this place, And then you set up there hiding in a tree or in a little, you know, behind some bushes, or you build what we call a blind, something to sit in and and, uh, hide yourself and you sit and you wait. And then hopefully you predicted the right thing. And then that deer will come walking by and you're able to get a shot. So there's a lot of, um, before the hunt work that's needed to, to put yourself in a good position to, to have a shot. Um, so that comes to scouting, I guess. So we talked a lot about, you know, just walking around and trying to mark these places on your map. So look for those food sources. You know, maybe you'll actually see a deer and you'll know, okay, he was out there. He was His head was on the ground. He was feeding on stuff. Okay, he's this is a food source. Again, I would try to, if you're new, if you find someone in the area who hunts there, try to ask, like I said, ask what kind of stuff they feed on. And maybe this person is going to say, well, they eat acorns and they eat apples and they eat this one tree leaf and they eat corn and beans and anything else in the farm fields. So now when you're out there scouting at some other point of the year, you can walk around the woods. And if you see some acorns in the ground, or if you see an old cornfield, now, you know, okay, yeah, these are probably places that deer are feeding. So you're just kind of building this map for yourself of, um, of these three kind of areas. And I think that's, that's like a great beginning point to set yourself up to actually go into the hunting season, knowing a few of these basic things. Um, I'm trying to think what kind of, like it's almost like a board game in that you're trying to identify these different like key locations, and then how you get from point to point. But I just don't know what board game to to say it is. Uh, <laughs> have
3: you have you guys noticed that maybe you know your strategies have changed season after season because obviously, as we talked about, deer are very perceptive animals, and perhaps they'll change their ways to fulfill that security point that you were talking about. So have you noticed that you know, your own strategies as deer hunters has to change season after season?
1: Man, these are good questions, aren't they, Dan? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I definitely, definitely, because because of that security need, they're con- deer are constantly changing what they do based on human activity. So if a deer was, you know, if the deer like to feed in the food source A and they like to bed in bedding area B, and that's what they're doing consistently every day maybe but if then i start going into that area and walking around and scaring those deer everywhere every day or accidentally you know my wind blowing to them and them finding out that i was there then they will change their behavior totally and so then you as a hunter need to adjust too so season after season that happens sometimes or that happens within a season so you're always trying to minimize them hearing you or seeing you or smelling you so they don't change that behavior but they're really smart. They're survivors, so inevitably, oftentimes they do. Um, so you need to right. be aware of that, and then try to adjust to that. So th- this kind of scouting, observing, and then adjusting is like a never-ending thing. You're constantly trying to learn what they're doing, and then readjust how you set up to try to to try to ambush them again. Um, agreed, Dan.
0: You mentioned you mentioned something about board game, right? I almost I want to say it's like chutes and ladders, right? You work your way up and then all of a sudden you'll hit a uh, a slide and have to go way back to the beginning. It's kinda of like deer hunting. You'll you'll walk into the woods, you'll set up in a tree based off of whatever sign you've found or you know, whatever. Let's say you've you didn't even scout the woods. You walk into a place, you think it's good, you set up there, and let's say you see a deer, right? And let's say the deer comes by hits a certain point and runs away. Well, that means this deer probably smelled you. All right. Well, now you have to say, okay, well, what made this deer run away? Oh, it's because my wind was blowing right at him. Well, next time I have to be, if the wind is the same, I have to be on the opposite side of that trail. So my scent won't go to where that deer was. So then you make that move, right? And then you realize that, well, it's the same wind, but a different deer came from a different direction and busted me or it, you know, nothing happened or the deer came by me and I was able to get a shot at him. You just keep playing this game where you, you make these small moves or sometimes they're big moves or whatever moves to put yourself in a position to where you're within range of whatever weapon uh, to, uh, to the deer you're after, I guess.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of observation, trial and error. I think as a, as a deer hunter getting started a lot of, you know, you can go and you can do a lot of preparation ahead of time by scouting these things out, finding these couple things we talked about. But then once you do start hunting, then it's a lot of what Dan just said, observing what happens and then changing your, your hunt location, your ambush location, for the next time to try to be a little bit closer or to, to take what you learned and and adjust your approach based on that. So there's going to be a lot of trials, a lot of errors, a lot of, you know, moving a little bit more, figuring things out, fine tuning where you're sitting, but it's, it's very much, you know, as we talked about, it's, it's this ambush style. So you kind of have to watch what happens on today and then tomorrow or next weekend or the next time you can go, then you're able to try the new approach, the new location. Um, but it's, it's very iterative, I think, is, is kind of what it, what it comes down to. So as far as that scouting, right, we talked about finding where they're feeding. We talked about finding where they're bedding. And, again, you know, bedding areas, what we've kind of referring to as bedding areas, one way to find them, like Dan said, is to just walk around during the day and see where deer go running out of. Um, that's something you want to do, you know not during hunting season, hopefully. Hopefully this is way ahead of time. Um, But usually this is going to be like an area that's really thick, you know, lots of bush, lots of brush, lots of just where deer, you know, couldn't be seen easily at a a very generic level. That's the kind of stuff typically they look for when they're finding where they want to bed. Um, And then another thing to look for when you're scouting is sign. And by sign, we talked about trails. You want to look for those actual trails through the woods that look like hiking trails sort of that these deer go up and down you can see like actual deer tracks, you know, in the mud, maybe on a trail or in a field or wherever. And that just kind of indicates that there's a lot of deer activity there. It's a good thing to see. Um, and then Dan also mentioned rubs. He mentioned that word rubs. And then earlier we talked about scrapes. I kind of explained that to you when we were out in the woods that one day. Um, but for anyone new who, who's not familiar with rubs and scrapes, I will give you just the the very 30,000 foot overview of what these two things are. Cause you'll see these things in the woods and you'll want to take note of them. So basically a rub is a tree. You're going to see on a tree where it looks like someone took um, like claws or something and just ripped up the side of a tree. And so there's going to be like strings of bark and, and tree stuff hanging off the side of a tree at about maybe, you know, anywhere from like knee to waist height, maybe that's a rub. And that basically is created by deer rubbing his antlers up against that tree. There's a whole bunch of stuff we go into that kind of seasoned deer hunters think about when it comes to what rubs mean. But I will say for just the beginner, I would just look at that rub as an indication that a, that a buck, that a deer has been through here. And it means that this is just a, an area that a buck travels through. That's another good piece of sign to just take into the equation and help you say, okay, yep, there is a, there is a buck moving through this area. It's another good thing to know. Um, Is
3: it it a form of communication with the other deer, or is it sort of satisfying some sort of, for lack of a better term, like an itch, or is it just
1: kind of unknown? So there's two things that most people believe they're doing. Number one, um, I think I'd mentioned this before, but in the summer when deer are growing their antlers, they have this fuzzy stuff on the outside of the antlers that we call velvet. So that comes off usually early September for most deer. So that first week of September, give or take a little bit, they are rubbing trees to get that velvet, any extra velvet off of their antlers. So they, they do Got some it. of that at that time period. But most of the rubbing behavior happens during and leading up to that mating season. And so some some people think it's like a little bit of a communication mechanism because when they're rubbing that tree, there's these glands that uh the deer have on their forehead and different parts of their face that release um oh what's the word i'm looking here for um oh gosh we're just gonna say chemicals because i can't think of what the the word on the tip of my tongue is but they they leave these these chemical uh communicators on the tree that came off of those glands off their forehead um and then it also, some believe, is kind of like a stress reliever too because there's all this pent-up energy. Again, if we use like the bar metaphor, you got this male who is trying to find a mate and he's frustrated because it's not working out maybe or because he wants to fight another guy or something like that. So this is like a way to get that pent-up sexual frustration out. They'll rip up a tree or rip up a bush. And um, that's another thing that's going on with this this rubbing behavior.
0: They build up, they also use it to build up their neck muscles for fighting.
1: So they're pumping iron. Yep. (laughs) Um, So then the scrapes are the other major piece of sign that we see out there that, that deer use and make. And this was that area that we saw when we were walking around Connor where it looked like something had scraped up the ground and opened up this kind of oval of dirt in the middle of the woods. So basically, if you're walking through the woods and you see this, what looks like just where all the leaves and grass and stuff have been kicked out of the way. And you just kind of see a dirt patch. That is a scrape. And for the, I think all we need to understand about scrapes is that this is a major communication hub for deer, deer that come through an area. Sometimes a buck will make a scrape where he will kick away all the grass, kick away the leaves with his, with his feet. He'll make this section. And then he will only make a scrape where there's a branch overhanging this area. We call it a licking branch. So, He's got this overhanging branch that's about head level. He walks up to this thing, he smells the branch, he maybe licks the branch, he rubs his forehead and his nose and his antlers on the branch. He's again getting some of those chemical signals from those glands rubbed up on that branch. So he's leaving some messages there saying, Hey, I was here or whatever he's trying to, whatever those chemicals indicate. And then he scrapes up the ground with his feet. He then typically a male deer will piss on the back of his legs on another set of glands there that again, leave more signals, which then again, communicate other messages to other deer. So any buck that comes by near that scrape, oftentimes will visit it and smell it to see who's been there, what's happening, and then leave his scent too. And then female deer will do the same thing and that they'll come and smell it and they get this information. So it's kind of like uh like back in the day when there's like the water cooler at the office and everyone would kind of come to the water cooler and that's where they'd kind of chit chat and there'd be like a bulletin board and you'd read all everyone, you know, whatever notes people left there. That's kind of how scrapes sort of work um, in some cases in the in the deer world. So as a hunter, when you see a scrape, you're going to usually say, okay, that means deer are going to frequent this at some part of the year and usually this is happening during the fall again around mating season Um, the one thing that's worth noting and we talked about this this spring too is that scrapes that you find along a field edge or like way out in the open are usually only visited by bucks after dark again because these deer wanna feel secure so lots of times they're not going to travel in the open during daylight they'd rather like to be back in the woods where humans or other predators won't see them um, now does, you know, or young bucks, they might move more during the daylight, but just worth noting that scrapes out in the open are more of a nighttime thing. Scrapes that you see like way back in the woods that are kind of secluded, those might be used more during daylight because deer feel more secure. So you've got all this scouting intel you look for tracks and trails and scrapes and rubs and food sources and bedding areas, all this kind of helps you like build that map of where deer are on a property or on an, on an area that you're hunting. Um, and that kind of sets you up now to then actually, you know, try to try to hunt. Dan, what am I missing as far as like that pre hunt scouting or preparation piece, um, that we need to touch on,
0: you know, for a beginner, uh, I feel that rubs and scrapes are a good thing to take note of, but not an ultimate indicator on, on where you should be hunting right away. Um, I think for a new hunter, if you find a, some tracks and let's say there's just more and more tracks in one area. And let's say they're all leading to a trail on a field edge. Just that's a good place to start is just the, where, where there's the most, Concentration of tracks and maybe a well used trail. I think ultimately that's just that that would be the perfect spot to start.
1: Mm-hmm. And then it's that observation you find these places, right? You, you observe, and then you say, Okay, this this looked like a good place to start based on these different things I saw. But now I'm seeing yep. that most of the deer are actually 100 yards over there, or most of the deer are coming out or coming in this region. And then that's when you adjust. Um, yep. But that's, I feel like, I'm hoping that we're covering like that, just the basic building blocks of how to figure out where these deer might be and how to start thinking about it. Um, next, I want to talk about actually going out hunting. But before that, Connor, anything on the basics of just this high level learning, scouting an area?
3: I mean, no, that that was a super helpful synopsis. And that's one of the things I'd always been curious about. And obviously, just kind of speaks to my general naivete around hunting, but I had no idea that there was... know, that much strategy and calculation and and, and preseason planning involved and I, I can't only imagine the amount of times I've been hiking through a forest and and stumbled across those types of signs but just obviously had no idea what they were. Um but no, super helpful.
1: And that that's one of the coolest things I think about hunting is that, you know, when you're out there hiking or walking around the woods or some area you're you're seeing stuff right you're seeing beautiful animals maybe and you're seeing flowers and trees and you're you're seeing something you're enjoying the landscape but there's a there's a depth of there's a depth out there that you're missing that as a hunter when you walk through that same woods you'll notice all these different things you'll notice all the things we just mentioned plus a whole slew of other different little features or little signs that point to how wildlife might be using this or what this habitat might mean for other animals. Um, or, Oh, Hey, look at that. This is a, a great place that deer probably walk through, or you might, I don't know, it just kind of opens up a whole new wealth of experience when you're going through these places, when you have this different depth of experience that, that just makes it really cool. Um, so I think, okay, we've we've understood how deer kind of behave. We've kind of covered how to learn an area. We didn't really talk about finding like a place to hunt. Like there's two options as far as like places to hunt. You could either go to public land, so land that's open to anyone and anyone can go out there and do this stuff. Or you can try to get access on land that's privately owned um, or you know you could own land yourself maybe already. But, uh, you know, Connor, when we were turkey hunting, that was private land that, you know, that our friend Matt owned. So we got permission to hunt that if you know a friend or have some different people that hunt or some people that own land, it's great to try to get permission on private land. That's a great opportunity to get in there and not have as much competition, you know, different other people out there bothering you. But if you don't have land to hunt, there are lots of public land opportunities out there where, you know, you can go out there for free and have access, um, we could talk a full podcast about finding places to hunt. So I don't want to dive too deep into that. Um, but there's lots of information on the internet or on the Wireton podcast or anywhere else, as far as finding places to hunt um, actually getting like a specific property to hunt or finding a piece of public land where you can go. Uh, I think that's just worth, worth noting. Uh, now, Connor, I, go oh, ahead. Man. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to ask with you living in Los Angeles, I take it that, you know, there might be some, there there may or may not be white-tailed deer close to where you're at, but I have a feeling you're going to personally have to travel somewhere to hunt. Is that correct?
3: Correct. And I, I actually think Northern California has um, some decent public lands, uh, but I think it's ma- – again, I think it's mainly black-tailed, I think.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Yep. So and, – and I should note that most of what we're talking about here is – it's bit more specific to white-tailed deer, which is the deer species that's, that's widely spread over most of the country. And then you've got sections of the country where there's mule deer, more in some of the mountain ranges, um, and some of the Rocky Mountain West into Pacific Northwest, and then far, far West along that West coast. Then you've got what you mentioned, the black-tailed deer, um, which are, which are very, very similar to mule deer. Sometimes kind of the same thing I think people have said. So... When you come and visit us, though, in the Midwest again, I think when you travel to hunt some of these whitetails, hopefully with, with me or someone here soon, um, this is the kind of stuff that we'll be doing and we'll be looking at. Now, were you going to go in any direction with that, Dan?
0: No, I was just kind of curious because, you know, obviously he's not going to have the ability to sit, you know, go spend large amounts of time scouting, you know, from his from where he sets, I'm assuming that he's going to show up for a hunting season. And if you were doing this all by yourself, you're going to be the person who has to scout and hunt all at the same time, which can, you know, can be a little bit more difficult. But if you follow the same principles, it, you know, it's all this, all the same. But it's always, it's always better in uh, your scenario to have, uh, you know, someone like Mark to help show you the ropes.
3: Yeah. Absolutely, and I'm always looking for any excuse to to get back to my homeland in the Midwest. So this, mm-hmm. this sounds like it uh, it is one of the better excuses to, to come.
1: Now, were you going to ask another question before uh, before Dan's there?
3: Well, just I was curious on the on the public land and, and private land management in terms of deer population. Um, what are some of the, I guess, regulations around private landowners and the things that they have to do? To ensure, you know, healthy deer populations.
1: So, it's all voluntary. You know, private landowners can can manage or not manage their property or their their wildlife. You know, however they want. Now, it's important to note that wildlife, so deer, turkeys, etc., are technically technically property of the state um, and are managed by the state and then so even if you own land so even if i own a farm or something and there's deer and turkeys on my farm those animals don't actually belong to me they're they're managed and they're managed by the state in the trust of the public so technically a deer that's on my property doesn't belong to me it doesn't belong to you it's uh it's roaming freely between those properties but as a landowner i do own that land and that habitat and i can choose how to manage that stuff so as a private landowner i can Manipulate the habitat. I can do things that will make it better for deer. Um, or people that don't care about wildlife, they can do whatever they want. They do nothing with it, or some people want to build stuff on it, or some people want to farm it, whatever it might be. Um, there's a ton of information and a whole subculture of deer hunting around managing your area, like your private property, specifically for wildlife and deer. There's all sorts of ways you can do that. It's probably it's it's definitely too in depth to go into for for this. Um, but if you want, you know, if someday Connor, you got to the point five years from now and you fell in love with deer hunting and you bought a 20 acre property outside of Chicago and you said, this is going to be my deer hunting property. I would tell you to go visit the website or become a member of an organization called the quality deer management association, just a terrific resource for everything related to how you can manage an area or a property for deer. And, um, help improve the health of the deer and your property, help manage all sorts of different things for that optimal situation. Um, So that's more, I'd point you or other people for that kind of stuff. Got it. So now we're hunting. We've learned a lot about the property. We've learned a little bit about the basics of deer. Um, I want to, again, we're kind of running out of time. This is one of those topics that probably we could spend like five hours talking about, but to try to cover the bare bones basics here in an hour and a half We're going to jump to actually going out there and hunting. So let's say you've got this property that you're allowed to hunt, Connor. You've studied it a little bit. You've learned where some of these different things are. Um, Now it's the day you're going to go out hunting. I want to mention a few things that you should be thinking about on this day when you're going to go hunt. Hopefully, before this day of the hunt, you've already done that scouting and you've picked a few places that you think there should be deer. Like Dan said, you found this trail or you saw these tracks or you found these rubs and scrapes and tracks all together and they seem like good places. So in a perfect world, you would set up a location beforehand, set up that ambush location beforehand. So you would either put a blind out there or a tree stand at that spot so that on the day of the hunt, you could just go and sit and be ready to go. Now, for someone brand new, basically a tree stand is like something that hanging up in a tree where you can sit in and be hidden from the deer and you kind of have this high perch where you can watch and, and, and shoot from or a blind is basically some kind of little shelter you create on the ground that again hides you there's a whole bunch of different options here you can have like fabric pop-up blinds you can build a blind just out of wood there's tons of different types of tree stands different ways to get up in a tree but that's more detail than we can get into um For the new hunter, in a perfect world, learn a little bit about blinds or tree stands and set up some locations so that on the day of the hunt, you can walk right out to your stand and be sitting and hunting. So this is different, Connor, than when we turkey hunted. When we turkey hunted, we just walked out there, picked a tree, and sat in the ground and uh, just called the birds in. You can do that, especially if you're hunting with a gun. Um i know like when i grew up deer hunting lots of times when we hunted with the guns uh, with firearms we would go out and sit on a stump or sit next to a tree that looked like a good spot with a good view and and you can you know get a shot at a deer like that especially when you've got a gun that can fire out there 100 yards or 200 yards away Um, but in a perfect world you'd have something already set up and if you're hunting with archery equipment like a crossbow or a regular compound bow when a deer is that close, close enough to get a shot with one of those weapons, they're going to see you moving if you're just sitting on the ground without any kind of concealment. So that's why having something that's going to hide you is important, but I'm going to try to gloss over that a little bit because we have to get to, you know, some other things. So the first thing when you're choosing, where are you going to hunt on this given day is what we talked about earlier. It's the wind. So we always needed to be thinking about where is my wind blowing? So, let's say today we have a West wind. If you're deciding where you want to hunt on that given day, just always think about how that wind will impact things. So if you picked out, let's say you picked out two locations on your property that look good based on that sign that we talked about already. Now think about what the wind will do. So we'll say location a you want to hunt with this wind that's blowing from the West, so it's blowing from the West, it's going to the East. If, that wind that's blowing now to the East is blowing right towards what you identified already as a bedding area where deer are going to be. That's probably not a good thing because those deer that are in that bedding area during the day will smell you when you walk there for your afternoon hunt. So just think about how is the wind going to impact things? Or if you're going to be walking to your spot and that West wind is going to blow towards that cornfield that you found, And at this time of day that you're walking in there, you think that deer will be feeding. So in the morning when deer are feeding, if you know that wind's going to be blowing into that cornfield, well, all of a sudden you realize, oops, that's where the deer are and they're going to smell me. They're going to run away. So always just be thinking about that. Um, Always be thinking then about the two things we already talked about, food and bedding. So when you're choosing where you want to hunt, you want to think about, okay, Bob, my mentor told me that. At this time of year in October, the deer are really feeding on acorns and if you had found that at your location b there were acorns, now you know okay, this is gonna be one of the this might be the better spot of the two locations I have because I know they're feeding on this food source um I don't know how how do we how do we talk through this Dan without getting too much in the weeds or making this confusing? Is this making sense um as I'm talking, I already see like there's so many different ways you could spiral around this. Um, Let me
0: let me put it, let me try to simplify it. Imagine a clock, okay? And you are the very center of the clock. That is your tree stand. Okay. If the wind is coming from 12 and blowing to six, just you should think that nothing is going to come from that direction because your scent is going to ruin everything in that direction or, or seven or six or five. And, you know, because scent kind of cones out from, you know, where, where you're at. So you have to, once you've identified where you think the deer are coming from, um, then kind of put a clock over top of it and, and put the wind coming out of, let's say a nine and, and going to a three, uh, the three, you know, the three is going to be bad. So let's say you identify, um, the deer are at a nine and they're going to go to a three. Well, that means that you should probably have a wind that is going from 12 to six or from six to 12 roughly. Okay. That way, when the deer are walking by you for the most part, they're not going to intercept you unless that trail is kind of above your location if that makes any
3: sense yeah and are you guys using any sorts of of decoys similar to the way that we i mean we're using decoys and calls uh for the turkey hunt mark
1: so there are certain situations when people will use deer decoys um i will say for the beginner hunter i wouldn't worry about that because usually it's just like a very small portion of the hunting season with very specific conditions would you ever want to use a decoy so I'd say for the average person going out there, don't worry about that yet. The best thing is just to set up the observation point. So, so yeah, so you take all the stuff you've learned about the property. You have a couple spots prepped. You think about the wind the way Dan described it. And then you're going to go out there and you're going to sit in that location and you're going to observe. You're going to be as quiet as you possibly can be because we talked about how great their hearing is. You're going to be as still as you can possibly be because he talked about how great their eyesight is and most hunts you're going to see deer but they're going to be too far away or they'll move through too quickly or something will happen where you're not able to get a shot but you learn something so always every time you go out there i would try to think about what they're doing and, and learn and so you can say okay well i learned that they're actually traveling over here or i learned that they tend to come back into this piece of woods an hour after daylight so just try to learn from that observation um I would say while you're actually out there hunting, when you're in the tree, or you're in your blind, or you're sitting on that log, the way I would spend most of that time is just very, very slowly, quietly looking around you. You know, Just very slowly turning your head, looking to your left, and just constantly observing the setting around you to try to make sure that you spot an animal before it spots you. So in a perfect world, you're sitting in your spot, and you're very carefully observing around you. Every once in a while, maybe put your binoculars up to your eyes and look off in the distance. And then hopefully you're going to spot a deer or a movement or a shape. And you'll see, okay, oh, that's a deer. And then you'll see it's coming your way. And then you can you know know when it's getting close enough so that you can prepare yourself and make sure you're not not moving at all. Not making any sounds or anything by the time it gets close enough. And then if this is a deer that, excuse me, if this is a deer you're going to try to get a shot at, then you can do things to prepare yourself for that shot. So, you know, like in your situation, turkey hunting, Connor, when, you know, when that, when that turkey finally was within sight of you guys, I know that Giannis probably had Instructed you to at this point be ready. You know, have your gun up already, and then you don't want to move at all, right? Because once that deer is within, or once that turkey was within sight of you, you didn't want to make any movements because they would see you. So you already had the gun up on your on your knees, and you were just waiting for him to get close enough, and then you just pulled the trigger. So that's kind of the same thing with deer hunting. Once you observe that deer, hopefully it's far enough away so you can get yourself prepared. So in this case, you're going to very slowly get your gun, or very slowly get your bow and position yourself however you need to to be able to get that shot, ideally doing this when the deer is not looking at you or when the deer is far enough away. And then once that deer finally does get to within range of whatever weapon is you're using, then you you go through that shot process. You pull the trigger, you shoot the bow, whatever it might be. Um,
3: And are there, in terms of aiming, because I know, as I mentioned in the beginning when I was talking about my turkey story, is there a specific spot you want to aim for? So, I mean, most of the meat is
2: preserved.
1: Yeah. So the vital zone on a deer is that its lungs or its heart are what you ideally want to hit. And so that is going to be just behind its shoulder. So the best thing to do, anyone that's brand new to this, just go to Google and and type in, you know, White-tailed deer vital zone or something like that. And there's a thousand different images, diagrams that show this. But if you imagine a deer standing in front of you and you imagine its front shoulder and then draw or just take a pie plate or take a paper plate and put that just behind that front shoulder, essentially that is the section that you want to aim at because you'll get hopefully that bullet or that arrow will go through both lungs or the heart and it very quickly um, will kill that animal as, as quickly and ethically as you possibly can. That's that's your best spot. Um, so a few things, I guess, at that point about handling the moment of truth. So you've got that deer coming in. You're going to get that shot. Dan, any advice for a very new hunter about handling the actual moments just before or at <laughs> the shot? No, because... What's going to happen is
0: I'm going to tell you something right now, and this will be the closest deer that you've ever had to yourself, right? You're you with the intentions of killing it and everything for the first time, everything that we've told you today will go out the window and you'll get this gigantic adrenaline rush. And you'll go into autopilot with whatever you've learned up to that point on shooting an animal, and it will be the greatest moment of your life, one of the greatest moments of your life. And so, for me to sit here and and tell a new hunter on how to act during the moment of truth is—I mean, I'm not going to say it's going to be—it would be wasted breath, but you're not going to—you're not going to think of what Dan Johnson told me when when you're getting ready to pull back the bow, you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> I, I will offer you one one piece of advice, though, Connor, and that is that for whatever reason, when you are taking a shot at an animal like a deer, for most people it's a lot different than when you take a shot at something like a turkey. Um, I don't know if it's because of the size of the animal or just the – the charismatic nature of a big mammal like that, but something about it. And also because the amount of work typically that goes into a deer hunt versus a turkey hunt, like it was a little bit easier to go out there on your first day, like we did. And this Turkey ran in and you just got that shot. Like it was, there wasn't a whole bunch of backstory and, and time and work that went into that. But on a deer hunt, there'll be lots and lots of work typically that goes into it. Um, and now all that's built up to this moment. Now this big, beautiful mammal is walking towards you and now you need to place that bullet or arrow in this one specific spot. So there's, it's a, it's a high pressure moment. So Dan said lots of times that first time you you might almost black out or you might just like your autopilot takes over lots of times. So the best way to make sure that this goes well and not badly is that you practice a lot beforehand. Yep. So don't do what you did with the Turkey hunt on your deer hunt because it's a lot easier to mess things up on a deer. So with that turkey, like the shot, is it's a, it was a shotgun you're using. So it shot out a bunch of different BBs in a wide area. So even if you shot a little bit to the left or a little bit up or a little bit down or to the right, all those BBs spread out and you were still able to hit that turkey, right? You mentioned that somewhere in the breast. So you, some of those hit low, but still that was a dead turkey. It was great. In a, the situation of a deer, it's just a single projectile. So it's one single piece of lead or one single arrow. So that has to go to the, to the right spot perfectly right spot so you just want to have practiced shooting a lot and done a lot to prepare for that moment so that when autopilot does kick in when the nerves kick in um there's something people refer to as buck fever so it's kind of just this this swelling up of emotion and excitement and nervousness and everything just before the shot some people like freak out start shaking some people start hyperventilating some people there's all sorts of different things that kind of happen to the body when this like high pressure moment happens um the more you've practiced actually executing a good shot, the more likely you are to be able to handle that moment. Um, so my my highest level piece of advice would just be to take that seriously. Any new hunter, like practice as much as you can ahead of time to make sure that when you do finally get that shot, you can take advantage of it and things go things go well you don't want to miss you don't want to injure a deer and then have it you know be wounded and you're not able to recover it Um, our goal is always to get a quick clean ethical kill that allows you to you know recover that that deer as quickly as possible get a bunch of meat and um, you know be able to continue on uh, as a as a successful hunter so there's lots and lots more about how to properly shoot under pressure, how to learn how to shoot a bow, how to learn how to shoot a gun. That stuff is, is above kind of what we're trying to achieve here too. So there's obviously tons of homework that any new hunter would have to do after this kind of beginning guide um, about learning how to how to shoot a bow or a gun or whatever it might be. So again, lots of resources on YouTube or on this podcast or if you Google it, there's lots of stuff out there. But um take that moment seriously, I guess I would say would be the most important thing. Be prepared um, because it is a high intense moment. Um,
3: No, that's helpful. And it's funny too, because I had no sort of idea how intense the shot part of the turkey hunt would be until they were coming down that alleyway and my heart was beating and I was like, all right, collect yourself. This is the actual moment. So, yeah, you know, I'm sure it's taken up to a whole nother level,
1: um, you know, when it comes to bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So multiply that turkey moment times like 100, and then that will be what your first, first deer might be like. Um, is there anything – and we're running out of time. Is there anything else on the actual in the tree or in the woods hunt, Dan, that we absolutely should touch on here? Or should we jump to a couple quick things on what happens afterwards? Just stay off your phone. <laughs> <laughs> right mark yeah i've had some mistakes <laughs> where i missed out on opportunities because of that so yeah stay focused definitely good when you're out there hunting try to avoid distraction um that'll always that's be one of the
3: best things about hunting though is like when you're out there at least the two days i was out there in michigan is i turned my phone off you know like this is the best excuse to not have it on yeah you
1: know? yeah i think that's a great way to do it because you can, if you allow yourself to, if you turn off those distractions and allow yourself just to take in everything around you,
2: um,
1: that really is what's so special about hunting is you, you get to put yourself out in these wild places surrounded by wildlife and you can observe and see all these different things and notice all these different things. And, um, it's, it's the complete opposite of most of our daily lives working in the office or the factory or whatever. And, surrounded by people and loud noises and all this stuff um it goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning connor which is just enjoying that experience out there um soaking it all in so that's that's so important to do and and also from a pragmatic standpoint getting distracted can can ruin your chances sometimes of getting a deer like it did to me this past fall so (laughs) don't do that (laughs) Um, was this Holyfield? Mark? Yeah, it was Holyfield.
3: <laughs> Ooh, that's probably still a sore subject, then.
1: It is. It is. That's why Dan chuckled when he mentioned it because he <laughs> he knew that was a dagger to the gut for me. <laughs> um, now when it comes to let's say let's say you did all these things right, you actually had a deer come in, you got a shot. This deer ran off fifty yards and dropped over, and it, it died quickly, and it's a perfect situation. Again, this is probably something you need to go watch a video on to see how to handle um, processing that deer in the field. But at a high level, what you want to know is that you want to gut that deer as soon as possible, especially if it's warm out um, because you want to be able to preserve the meat as best as possible. So if you saw that deer run and die, go over that thing and then gut the deer. YouTube how to gut a deer to learn how to do this or go out there with a friend or a mentor who can show you it's way too complicated to try to talk you through it right now, uh, over the over the Skype. But you saw how you know I showed you how to breast out and take out the legs and thighs of a turkey. Um, you know it's going to be a process that kind of deal where you need to learn how to open up the deer, take out entrails and stuff like that. That then cools down the deer's body, and then after that. You'll need to get that deer out of the woods, back to your house or back to your truck or back to wherever so that you can then make the decision of how to process that meat. You can process the meat yourself. Um, and again, it helps to have a friend or a mentor, someone who knows what they're doing. Um, but I actually learned how to process my deer from a book. I bought a book that was like a step-by-step guide to processing your own deer. So basically how to butcher up the meat you know, into different pieces, how to get it off the get it off the bones and get it into pieces of meat that you can then package up and put in the freezer. So I I taught myself out of a book. Um, So that's an option for people. Or there's YouTube videos out there that walk you through everything. Or if for some reason you don't want to do that or you don't have the time to do that or you don't feel comfortable doing that, there are lots of butcher shops and meat processors all over the country that will do this for a small fee. Um, So that's an option too. But you just want to do whatever you can gut that deer as quickly as possible to make sure the meat stays cool. Learn how to gut properly so you're not getting, um, stomach fluids or things on the meat that will make that meat go bad. Um, just take this part, you know, learn as much as you can about this part because that meat is so important to, uh, that's at the very base of what we're doing. That's why we're, why we're hunting is to get that amazing organic free range protein. So make sure you're taking it, uh, Taking it seriously and doing a good job of getting that meat out of the woods into your freezer, um, and that's some good, good tasting food too. You you had some elk, you had some caribou, um, so you've enjoyed stuff that's going to taste very much like a white-tailed deer. And uh, I think based on your experiences at our hunting camp, Connor, you can attest to the fact that it's it's uh, it's something worth working towards, right? For that kind of food. Oh my
3: gosh, it was it was some of the most fresh best food i'd eaten in a long time it was great i I mean obviously you know going out there in the woods naturally you build up a hunger but i was uh i was looking forward to every meal more so than i usually do yeah
1: so dan i mean i i feel even effort like i came into this podcast with like high hopes of like feeling like we cover so much so clearly and articulately and now looking back on it i'm like man i feel like we, we had to gloss over so much. We had to walk circles around so many different things, but I'm hoping we laid out some basics that will be helpful to someone that's brand new. Is there anything, though, that you feel like we definitely missed that we have to touch on?
0: I feel I – feel, this is what I feel. <laughs> um, Connor, do me a favor because guys like – myself and Mark, who are in the hunting industry, right? We see it every day, um, whether it's pressure to shoot a big buck or it is, you know, because we are, I don't know, we're content providers to the industry, you know, we have to play in the world where big, mature bucks are the most important thing in the world. When in all actuality, it is not important at all. Okay. As a new hunter, I would say go out there and just hunt and not worry about what size the antlers are, how old the deer is. All that stuff can be secondary as you progress up your ladder, but for guys like me, I I go into a season kind of thinking about this and it and it doesn't necessarily take the fun out of it, but in a way, it kind of takes the, the overall enjoyment of what hunting is supposed to be about down a level. So, from, from what I would say to myself as an experienced hunter to a new hunter, don't worry about that, all that extra shit. Just go out and experience hunting in its raw
1: form. I agree. I think that's, uh, it goes back to, you know, kind of where we started. That experience, being out there, observing, learning, connecting with these wild animals and these places in a, in a different way that that only happens when you go out there as a hunter, um, which I think you got to begin to experience on that turkey hunt, Connor, and uh, and have fun, enjoy it. Don't stress out too That's- much about it. Um, you are out there trying to achieve a goal, trying to get that deer, trying to get that meat, but enjoy it too because um, it's a it is a millennia old, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of year old tradition of humans acquiring our meat from the land in this way. And it's, uh, in my opinion, a privilege to be able to still partake in that. So, um, so enjoy that process. So Connor, yeah. now that you've heard all this stuff and we've confused you probably with 10,000 different things, <laughs> <laughs> or do you have any pressing questions you want to make sure we cover before we wrap this one up?
3: You know, no, I think you guys uh, fielded all my questions very well. And it was super helpful to get some pro tips from, uh, you know, some of the best tail guys out there. And, you know, I think to Dan's uh, point early on in the show, it's pretty amazing what goes into, you know, the entire process and strategy and how long and, you know, how patient you guys have to be. But ultimately, it seems like that's what makes it so fulfilling you know, when, when you get the deer and, you know, ultimately when it gets to your table. So, you know, it's just something I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into and can't thank you guys enough for, for having me on and and fielding my questions.
1: Hey, our pleasure, Connor. And I I want to extend the invite if you, if I haven't already, and I think we kind of have talked about this, but if not, I would love for you to come up to Michigan and deer hunt with me at some point this year to try to take some of the things we talked about and actually try them out in the field. And, uh, See if uh, we can fill your freezer with some venison if you're interested.
3: Absolutely, challenge accepted.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dan Connor, thanks guys for uh, this fun conversation. It's it's got me excited to get out and hunt myself, and also to continue trying to to have more conversations like this. Because next to hunting yourself, one of the most fulfilling things is is seeing other people getting into it. Like I had so much fun watching you and Jason kind of test the waters. And taking my nephew out the past two springs, getting him out there and, and him learning some of these things, that has been so much fun. Um, so anyone listening right now that is a experienced hunter but hasn't got to take other people out, I hope you will um, I hope you'll give it a try. I hope you will try to introduce more people to what we're doing because I think any of us that are experienced in this stuff, we know how fulfilling it is. We know how great it is to to feed your family with something that that you you know hunted yourself. And to be part of that whole process and to enjoy all these experiences, we know how great that is. So uh, take a little time out of your hunting season, take a little time out of your year to uh, to share it with someone else. I think, um, I think you'll enjoy that. And I think it's going to be important for the, the long-term future of our hunting community and lifestyle. So that's it for today, folks. And the only other thing I'd add is just a quick reminder to head on over to iTunes and give us a quick rating or review if you haven't yet. It doesn't take very long at all, but it is a huge help. Also, make sure if you haven't done this already, head over to the wired to hunt YouTube channel and subscribe. We've got a new series coming out, or kind of a series of videos within our, our weekly vlog series, which I will be taking a look back at my 2017 hunting season for Holyfield and breaking down the decisions I made, some of the mistakes I made, some of the lessons I learned. And of course, if you follow this podcast, you've heard me talk about them a lot, but I actually haven't put the video out there from 2017 yet. So this will finally be happening. I think you'll get a kick out of it. So make sure you're subscribed to that Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. And next, I want to thank our partners for their support of this podcast. Big thanks to Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Properties, Huntera Maps. And of course, thank you all for listening. As I have mentioned many times before on the podcast, couldn't be doing this without you guys your support your time and attention it is so appreciated and and i mean the the overwhelming deluge of positive comments and emails and messages and tweets after the news i shared last week i just can't thank you enough for all that it was incredible you guys have lifted me up and um, supported me so much and it is very very much appreciated so until next time thank you and stay wired to hunt